The scripture reading for this afternoon is taken from 1 Corinthians 15, the verses 12 to 28. 1 Corinthians 15, the verses 12 to 28. And we'll be reading that in light of Lord's Day 17, which asks the question, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? So thus far, the Heidelberg Catechism has been taking us step by step through the Apostles' Creed. And this is the question that deals with where it speaks about his resurrection. So in connection with that, we'll read 1 Corinthians 15, the verses 12 to 28. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead... How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, then we are, of all men, the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So far. Let's now read together that question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 17, which you'll be able to find on page 531 of your book of praise. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection he has overcome death so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death. Second, By his power, we too are raised up to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, have you ever been to a funeral? Have you ever stood by a graveside? What were the thoughts that went through your head as you stood there. Slowly but surely, we're getting closer to Christmas. In Christmas, we celebrate our Lord Jesus Christ 
coming to earth, being born of a woman and born in the flesh. And this is truly something to celebrate with a lot of joy. For many, it's considered one of the most important, if not the most important, Christian feast day on the calendar. But it's not Christmas that gives us comfort when we stand at the graveside reflecting on the death of a loved one in the Lord. Rather, it's the resurrection of our dear Savior and Lord. And that's why we're here today, isn't it? Christ's resurrection took place on the third day after his burial, according to Hebrew counting, which includes a partial day as a day. His resurrection took place on a Sunday morning, the first day of the week. It's this resurrection day that came to be known as the Lord's Day, the day of worship for the whole Christian church. Christ's resurrection signaled a shift from gathering and resting on the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. We can see this already in the church's gathering in the New Testament, worshiping and giving gifts for those in need among them on this day. We can find evidence of this already in passages like Acts 20, verse 7, where Paul preaches on the Lord's Day until midnight. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, where Paul commands the churches to gather collections on the first day of every week. In Revelation 1, verse 10, where John makes reference to the Lord's Day. And in John 20, where Jesus himself chose to appear to his disciples themselves on the first day of the week, the day that was his, confirming his resurrection for them. As an aside, that's why our Heidelberg Catechism headings are called Lord's Days. And they're divided into 52 sections. There's a section to teach on the first Lord's Day of the year, on the second Lord's Day of the year, and so on. Now, for the Christian at the graveside, it's not Christmas Day that's the most meaningful. Rather, it is this first day of the week as a celebration of Christ's victory over death, the grave, and hell. Because this is the day that Jesus himself rose from the dead. On this Lord's Day afternoon, we'll reflect on the joy we receive from the fact of Christ's resurrection under the following theme and points. Christ, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, grants us first a hope beyond this life and second strength for this life. To understand why Paul is writing on the subject of the resurrection and why he writes on it so extensively in this passage, you need to understand the state of the Corinthian church at the time, of the, that, at the time that this first letter to them was written. Corinth was the most important city in Greece during Paul's day. It was a major center of commerce and filled with philosophy and religious ideals. Pagan culture was the order of the day. It allowed them to celebrate all kinds of sins as acceptable and worthy of approval. In many ways, you could compare it to a city like Toronto today. It's seen as many, in many ways as the hub of culture, comedy, and film in Canada. It's seen as, in the eyes of many, the most prominent city in Canada. And if you want to indulge in sin and pursue money, alcohol, power, or sex, well, Toronto is a place that you can easily do that as well. Once called Toronto the Good, 
It's now a place where everything goes as long as it upholds today's secular ideals of tolerance and worldly love. That was the kind of place that Corinth was as well. The sad thing was that this attitude bled into the Corinthian church. Lawsuits, factions, immorality, and many other sins were rampant among the members of the Corinthian church. As the saying goes, where it rains in the world, it drips in the church. And you could really see this evidently in the church at Corinth. Our passage today leads with one of the bigger issues that they were facing. This was a calling into question that God's witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ actually meant what they said. In Corinthian culture, in Greek culture as a whole, for that matter, a materialistic view of the world was pretty common. While many of them did believe in gods and a spiritual world and were deeply superstitious, and many of them did believe in an afterlife, there was a large contingent that had pushed all of that away, and they believed in a secular world. They believed that this life was all there was to it. And after this, there was nothing. There were Christians in this Corinthian church who bought into that idea. And these Christians, some of these Christians even went as far as to reject the idea that Christ could have been raised from the dead. Why? Because people don't rise from the dead. This is not an uncommon view today. We live in a culture that promotes the rejection of the idea of the supernatural, and it promotes explanations of a world that go beyond what, that, that do not go beyond what we can see. Certainly there are many who do believe in a God, but when it comes to miraculous experiences, those who drive our culture are more likely to be highly skeptical. And this isn't only true on the secular level. Just like in Corinth, we see this in churches around the world today. On the theological level, there is a movement in churches that has its roots in a theological movement called German Higher Criticism, which calls into question many aspects of the Bible. This movement says that what the Bible says about six-day creation can't be taken literally. It says that miracles are questionable. Jonah being able to survive in a great fish, the sun moving backwards through the sky, a donkey talking, all of these things are to be taken as metaphors, not actual events. And the resurrection, one common saying among the people who... who are in the middle of that movement was Jesus Christ arose in the hearts of his disciples. He didn't actually arise. It was just a spiritual movement. It was a movement that spread throughout the world and it twisted as it spread until people actually believed that he rose from the dead. The sins and skepticism of this age isn't something new. It's been around since the time of Corinth. 
The devil uses old tricks like the godless skepticism and immorality of culture all around to sway the church into thinking that a godly, Bible-based life is wrong. Or that the teachings that are brought forward in the Bible itself are not to be taken seriously. Those are all old myths. Really? You believe that? Even better, the devil tries to get Christians to separate their world into religious and non-religious. Not to think about the Bible at all during those non-religious periods of our lives. And to consider the cultural norms of this day as normal and acceptable. But what happens when we begin to create this division in our lives? What happens when we reject the authority of the Word of God? When we place it on a lower level and we start to call into question the events that have happened and describe them as myth, as many in the Corinthian church were doing. Paul puts it plainly. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. You see, Christ's resurrection is intimately tied to his work throughout his life. We read in Romans 4, verses 24 to 25, that Christ's work is given to us who believe in the Father, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. This same Jesus who was delivered up because of our offenses and who was raised up because of our justification. Raised because of our justification. To be justified means to be declared righteous before God. It means that our debt, which is given to us because of our sin, is wiped out. Jesus was raised from the dead because of our justification. The Holy Spirit tells us in this passage that Jesus was raised because God accepted his sacrifice as being enough. His suffering and his death paid for everything. By his suffering and death, we are justified. We are declared righteous. As we saw in our catechism reading this afternoon, Christ, by his resurrection, has overcome death so that he could make a share in the righteousness that his death has gained for us. His resurrection from the dead was a guarantee that we are no longer in our sins. We can't just spiritualize this. We, if we say that Jesus just arose in our hearts because we can't accept the idea of a miraculous resurrection of Jesus Christ and the appearance of angels clothed in white at the tomb, then there's simply no point to being a Christian at all. Our faith won't help us because the whole point of believing in Jesus Christ is that we will be saved from the wrath of God and live in the new life that Christ has bought for us by his blood. As Paul said, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. But Christ is risen. He is risen as the first fruits 
of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits was a harvesting term. It was the first bit that you pulled off of the field, and it was what you offered to God. In offering of your first fruits to God, you were putting your faith in God's provision, in the certainty that He would provide the remainder of the harvest. It's the same sentiment as is expressed in Proverbs 3, verses 9 to 10. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase, so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats overflow with new wine. Christ was the first fruit of the harvest. And in the bringing in of the first fruits, in raising up Jesus Christ from the dead, God was pointing us, and God is pointing us, to a greater harvest that's yet coming. Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Death no longer becomes the end of the line, but death becomes the moment when we close our eyes and then we open them again in glory. This is what lies ahead of us. With Christ as the first fruits, we know that this life is not all there is for us. And this brings us to our second point. Christ, the first fruits, grants us strength for this life. The fact that the last enemy was destroyed in the resurrection of Christ, and the fact that they received proof of this in the resurrection of Christ was what spurred on the followers of Jesus to spread Christianity throughout the Roman world and even beyond. Yes, they had proof. Although the Corinthians themselves had never seen the resurrected Christ, he ascended into heaven not too long after his resurrection, and many of them wouldn't have been converted until later. Although they themselves had never seen the resurrected Christ, Paul was still able to point them to the ones who had seen Christ. Go back with me a few verses for a moment. To 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. We read there, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And here's where the important part comes in, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the Twelve. Afterward, He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. They were still alive, He said. They're still here. You can speak to them. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. There were eyewitnesses who had seen and who had attested to the resurrection of Christ. And not just a few, over 500. Paul says, you want to discount the resurrection from the dead, well, you need to take these eyewitnesses into account before you do that. Chuck Colson, a man who had served as a special counsel during the Nixon administration, who was imprisoned for his involvement in the Watergate scandal, and who was converted to Christ 
in the middle of all of this, he said this, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And that's what the apostle Paul is referring to here as well. When he refers to the eyewitness testimony of those who saw the resurrected Christ. They were not false teachers. These were men who were absolutely convinced of the truth. They were not just convinced in themselves, but they were convicted by the work of the Holy Spirit within them. And they were, through that, equipped to speak boldly and powerfully to the rulers of this age. Are you convinced of the truth of the resurrection, beloved? What impact does it have on you? Does it give you greater courage to stand for the truth? Does it give you greater courage to speak the truth? Maybe not a courage that's greater than all of those who are around you. We can't all be the Apostle Paul. But does it give you a greater courage than you find in yourself? Do you pray for a greater courage to be able to speak that truth to those who are within your sphere of influence because you believe it to be true? In addition to the reality of Christ's resurrection behind him and the evidence that he rested on, the Apostle Paul is also given strength by what lies ahead. Because Christ's resurrection, as we saw, is also a guarantee of what will come. He writes, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, he writes. Christ as the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. There is still more coming beyond this present age. Because it's not just the evidence of what lies behind us that gives us strength, that gives us courage, but it is also the hope that lies ahead. You see, every authority on this earth, think back, for example, to the Alberta government's recent threat to pull funding and maybe even accreditation from our Christian schools there. Every authority on earth will be placed under Christ's feet. They will either bend the knee now or they will bend the knee in eternity. Paul goes on to write, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For, and here he quotes 
an Old Testament prophecy about Christ as, as proof of what's coming to pass. He says, for he has put all things under his feet. All earthly authorities are answerable to God. You boys and girls can compare it to if your oldest sibling tells you to do something foolish while they're babysitting. Would you do it? Or would you say no and remind them that dad and mom are coming home? Dad and mom are the higher authority. And the fact that they're going to come home and that you are answerable to them and not first and foremost to your older sibling is what's important here. Your older sibling as the babysitter has some authority, but that authority is subject to dad and mom. And they will be held accountable to dad and mom. Yes, they can make life miserable for a short time if they feel irritated at you, but that's okay, because at the end of the day, dad and mom will come home. In the same way, earthly governments can tell us to do wrong things and even threaten to punish us, but they will be held accountable to God. In his time on earth, Jesus himself said, don't be afraid of those who kill the body. Worry about God who can throw body and soul in hell. Luke 12, verse 5. With him as our risen Lord, we don't need to worry about either. If we have faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, God is ours and we are his. And we have a hope that stretches beyond this life. It doesn't matter what people do to us or take from us on this earth because we stand for the name of Christ and we stand for all that is right and true. We know that, as is confessed in Philippians 1 verse 23, no matter what they take from us, we will be raised up again. They can even take our lives but we will be raised up again. We go to be with Christ, which is better by far. What this earth has to offer pales in comparison with what God has to offer us in the life that lies beyond the gates of death. We are not to be pitied more than all men for holding on to a useless faith that doesn't help us in the present and doesn't give us hope for the future but rather we are the envy of the world, though they do not know it yet. We have a treasure lying in store for us that they can't understand. And so what seems like foolishness to them, resulting in us living like no one else, becomes for us wisdom from God that points us to eternity. This gives us courage. Courage to stand up, even to governments, for our faith in this present life. Courage to speak the truth to those who are around. It gives us courage to hold each other accountable in love. To carry our tasks out here within the walls of this church building. To carry out our task here in Owen Sound. To carry out our task in Gray County and beyond with boldness and conviction. With the knowledge of the one who really rules the home. He is coming back. Yes, we face death every day. In our own potential death or in the death of those around us. 
But we don't stand at the graveside with no hope. We don't face the premiers and the prime ministers of this world with no hope. We know that a day is coming when the fullness of the harvest will be brought in, following Christ as the first fruits. And we are living in light of that and nothing else. Beloved, today on this Lord's Day and tomorrow on Thanksgiving, let us commemorate the resurrection of Christ and all that that means for us. Let us glorify His name and let us eagerly look forward to the final day of Christ's return when His victory will be complete and we will all be resurrected in the body that God may be all in all. Amen.